classrooms because of the food prep that's taking place over at this, this side of the building. And just thank you all for bringing things to eat today. And also thankful for the ladies who are over there kind of setting and coordinating all that uh, for our enjoyment as well. Thankful to those who prepare the communion table as well. Just uh, thankful for all who are a part of this church family and uh, the service that you, you give to the Lord. It's for the Lord, but it's also for one another. Thankful for that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26. As you're turning there, just to reemphasize uh, the announcement about the work day on November 18th, um, it is the intention of our board to begin the demolition work on that building that we had purchased on the land that we had purchased last year. Um, we hope to have that done before the end of the year, Lord willing, and so... Some early stage of that is removing some of the siding uh, and setting it on pallets uh, so it can be taken care of properly. So shouldn't take long, hopefully just a morning, uh, but five to eight guys would be a wonderful, ladies would be a wonderful blessing uh, to that work crew. Genesis 26. Heavenly Father, as we look at this text... Help us to recognize the truths that are here for us as New Testament believers. That what we see exhibited in the life of Isaac would be something that would help us think through the progress of our own sanctification and our necessary dependence upon you for the creation of holiness within our lives. And so, Father, just give us understanding, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning as we look into this text, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It's important for us to understand that Christianity means that change is possible. Deep, fundamental change is possible. What I mean by this is that tender-heartedness can become the norm when we tend to be more callous or insensitive to other people. Because of Christianity, tender-heartedness can replace. It's possible to be, to be removed from a domineering, bitter spirit. It's possible to become a loving person because of what Christ did. This is what the Bible assumes. It assumes that God is the decisive factor in making us what we ought to be. If God had not purposed to bless us with change, there would really be no hope. There would be no hope that we could become anything what we have than other than what we have always been. If God had not sent His light to illumine our hearts, there would be no hope for fruit production. 
Without light, there is only death that we can expect. And I think that we need to just think about this for a moment, that the Bible, as it speaks about commands of change, it presupposes that God is the decisive factor in your ability to change. For example, in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, a, a text that, we, that we, we know fairly well, some of us, tells us that we're to put away malice and then be tender-hearted. I think we stop and think about this for a moment. We realize that it does not say, if you can. Or it doesn't say, if your parents were tender-hearted to you. It doesn't say, If you weren't terribly wronged, it simply says, be tender-hearted. In another place, the Bible says to be sexually pure. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 3 through 8, it doesn't say if you don't have strong passions. It also doesn't say if your spouse is attractive. It doesn't say if you are married. It simply says that we are to be sexually pure. Now, that's a bluntness of expectation. But that's only possible because of what Christ has done. And that's truly a freeing thing for us because it frees us from a a fatalism that, that change is impossible for me. I can't change because of what has happened to me or my past. No. Christianity says that you can change. God is a decisive factor in your ability to change. I think this can fill us with hope. It ought to fill us with a hope. That we don't have to stay where we have always been if our parents were lazy, for example, or our coworkers frustrate us. Maybe your spouse drives you nuts and you tend to react in a certain way. You don't have to do that because of what God has done. God is a decisive factor in making us what we ought to be, and I believe this is evident in this text and evident in the life of Isaac. I want us to see this, and I pray that we would believe this to be the case, because if we believe that God is the decisive factor, then change is possible for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? God never commands what His grace does not provide. You may nod your head, you may think in your heart, well, yes, of course, I believe this, but does your heart really know this? Isaac here is one of the longest living patriarchs that we know the least about. In fact, this one chapter is like a synopsis of his life. And it's profoundly parallel to Abraham. And as we read this, we're going to see that the faith of Abraham 
was transitioned to Isaac as well. Isaac was walking in his father's footsteps. He receives similar promises. He faces similar tests. He falls in similar ways. But he's not limited by those similarities. In fact, he triumphs in a greater way. And so, in many respects, Isaac becomes for us a pattern of a pattern of those who have put their trust in the promised one. He was the promised child, a figure of the promised one, Jesus Christ, who would come. And all who are trusting in Jesus Christ are inheritors as well. And so I want us to think of this text, and I want us to see how Isaac becomes profoundly aware that God is a decisive factor in his life, and this becomes an instrument of change in his life. It can be an instrument of change in your life, too. The first thing that we need to see in this text, and we're going to read it as we go. First, God adopts all believers just as he adopted Isaac. In verses 1 through 5, We read this. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." We're picking up the story here of Isaac again. It's a story that that is told out of order. A couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, if you can think back that far, we had we had talked about the birth of of Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. This moment in chapter twenty six is told out of order of sequence. In fact, the last chronological detail that we we have recorded prior to this, is in chapter 25 in verse 11. Just take a look there with me, please, this morning. This is important for us to see this this theological point that, that God adopts Isaac. In verse 11, he says, And the death of Abraham, excuse me, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beher. La Haroi. Now that's a that's a hard word to grasp. But that word literally means I have seen him who looks after me. This was the name of the well that was given uh, a meaning when Hagar, the servant of, of, of Sarah, was wandering, and she thought she was going to die, and the angel of the Lord pointed her to to a well of water, and she named it. She was overcome by the fact that God was looking and watching out for her. 
God had eyes on her, and this is, this is where Isaac is. He's profoundly aware of this story in his life, in his family background. And it's here, after the death of Abraham, he settles at this place which reminds him of his spiritual heritage. Isaac, he's been brought up in the faith, but I would suspect that at this point he's not completely in the faith. He's, he's ha- had a personal connection with God himself. He's lived a lot around it. Abraham, his father, took him up the mountain, was going to slay him, and he saw God's hand. But his own personal relationship is not developed yet until we get to chapter 26, in which God comes to him and promises to be with him. Second aspect that we need to see here is that God, yes, he's got his eyes on Isaac, but not only does he have his eyes on Isaac, he also, he also acts as Isaac's father. We have no record in this writing of Abraham doing the typical fatherly blessing. And this is on purpose by the writer to highlight that God is doing what Abraham didn't do. He becomes like a father to him. And God adopts Isaac, if you will, and personally blesses him. And that's what we just read in chapter 26. And so this is the setup here, that God is intervening in Isaac's life and adopting him as if he were his own son, his only son, in blessing him. God initiates a relationship with him. And it's important for us to understand that it is God that moves into relationship here with him. In fact, Paul, looking back into the Old Testament in the book of Galatians, observed that this is the normal pattern. This is the way spiritual life begins. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul said, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Further in the book, he also says this, now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise according to the spirit of promise. The type of Isaac transfers to us in Jesus Christ. We also are adopted into the family of God. God sets his eyes on us and looks at us and he adopts us and brings us into his own family. God adopts all of us as his children. There's just no other way. And so we have a new father. We have a new family. And and it breaks this fatalistic force of that my family affects who I am. Faith in God's liberating work is the basis for all change. You are no longer who you were. You are new in Christ because you have been adopted into the family of God. This is how God relates to all believers. 
gives. And he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit, which cries, Abba, Father. And there's a liberation that takes place. I think it's important for us to see this at the beginning here of this text. So there's something happening here. Isaac is experiencing famine. He's wandering closer to the border of Egypt. He's going in the same direction that his father had gone. Yet God intervenes and steps in and says, no, 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 you don't go down there to Egypt. You stay here in the land. I'm going to take care of you. I will protect you. And so, in many ways, there is a parallel for here for us as believers as well. Following close, close to our Heavenly Father. And it's important for us to see Secondly, that God loves all of his children just like Isaac. In verse 6 through 11, let's read what happens next. So Isaac settled in Gerar, where the men of the place asked him about his wife. And he said, oh no, did he really? She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people may easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, this is clear evidence that this is taken out of order, because this ruse of him being a sister would not have gone far if she had have actually been full term or she had children running around her. This could only have been carried off if there had been no children yet. And in the 20 years in which those children, this is this kind of where this has taken place. Now, Abimelech, did we already see Abimelech? Well, we saw another Abimelech about 80 years previously in the life of Abraham. Abimelech became like a, a kingly title, like Caesar or Pharaoh was a transferred title and name. And so the Philistines started to develop their kingship, and they called them Abimelech, son of the king, literally it means. And so what we see here is interesting. You see the sins of our fathers affecting Isaac. And you know, the sins of our fathers do affect us. I mean, you consider your own life history and your life story have you not ever caught yourself saying, doing, thinking, sinning in the ways that your parents have? Or maybe your grandparents have? I know I have. But it's, it's important for us to realize that this, this is a true factor in our humanity. We are so thoroughly contaminated by sin that we pass sin to another generation. 
But the hope in this is that if we're adopted in Christ, we don't have to repeat the sins of our fathers. We can break those spiritual chains. I want us to notice here, too, the second most prominent description in this text. It's helpful for us to understand this. It says that in this account, in verse 6, what happened? He feared. He feared. You know what? Where fear exists, there is no love of God. And the awareness of God's love was missing in this moment. In fact, he forgot his adoption, I believe. And, and, and as I'm reading this as interpreter, I'm picking up little clues. And one of the greater clues, other than the fact that it says he feared, was that there's no reference to God at all here in this part. God is not in the awareness. He's not in the foreground. He's in the background. And so, what we read in this is that Isaac was not primarily focusing upon his unique relationship with God, which would protect him from all things. And so, he feared. He was not conscientious of the love of God for him. And isn't this how we all fall into temptation? We temporarily forget that we are not on our own, that we are bought with a price. And so we act independently on our own. And when God is in the background, we fall hard. Notice the rebuke from Abimelech when he says, what have you done to us? Isaac has forgotten the love of God, which which promised to protect him. And you know, his self-preservation, his desire to protect himself had potentially hurt other people. He was not loving other people because he was self-absorbed in his own love. He wanted to protect himself. But in this unique moment, Isaac could have turned and said, God is my ultimate love. He loves me with such great affection. I have nothing to fear. I can protect this community by telling them the truth. But he didn't. We fall into sin when we forget that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. I had mentioned Ephesians 4 at the beginning. I want us to think for a moment, Ephesians 4, verse 31 and 32. It is a powerhouse for our obedience. It's, a, it's, it's an application for us. The verses read, And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, Therefore, be imitators of God, notice that next phrase, as beloved children, and walk in love just as also Christ loved you. Do you see that? That's the powerhouse for obedience, that our awareness that we are beloved children, that, that the love of God is poured out on us, is the impetus, it's the, the power to change, to be tender-hearted. We're loved children. We are loved children. Don't forget that. We are loved children, and so therefore we can be imitators of Christ. Well, thankfully, God may be in the background of our thinking like Isaac here, 
God is not absent. He's still there whether or not we're thinking about Him or not. He's not going to allow us to go headlong into sin. If we are His children, He's not going to let us slip away. He's going to providentially remove the darkness that has enveloped your life, and He's going to, to do this for your good. How is He going to do this? You know what? Someone's going to look out the window. Someone's going to look out the window just like Abimelech looked out the window and saw the truth. Someone is going to observe your internet browser history. Someone is going to check your financial records. God won't let you fall continually into darkness if you are His child. He loves you too much to let that happen. And so this is what happens in the life of Isaac. And so the third point that we need to see here in the last part of this text is that God blesses us as His children just as He did Isaac. In verse 12 to 22, to 33. We're going to break this into three pieces. Let's move into verse 12 to 16 and see what takes place. And Isaac showed, excuse me, not showed, but sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. He blesses Isaac here with prosperity. Prosperity. Why? I mean, he had just sinned. What's going on? We don't have the specific details here, though, of Isaac's repentance. However, it's not unreasonable to believe that a repentance occurred with the exposition of his sin. Exposition, the exposure of sin, is the first step that leads us to repentance. And in the fast pace that this summary is taking place, it would seem as though his relationship had been restored because God enters into the storyline again and you see him actively blessing Isaac. God prospers him in his repentance. Now, this would be a great time for me to stop and say that, that you too in the gospel can have prosperity. Wealth, unimagined. But that would be a lie. That would be a lie. And it's the greatest problem of the prosperity gospel. We overlook the fact that if we, 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 we just think about like, okay, so, so Isaac got lots of goods. If we stop right there, we've missed the greatest prosperity we could ever imagine. The greatest prosperity that we can have is freedom from the sins that chain us. That is the greatest prosperity. But if God chooses to bless us financially, then that's His choice. And He might. But Isaac's prosperity is profoundly eternal. And forgiveness is what he receives. He, 
and it's the greatest prospering that we can receive. So in this blessing, there is the prosperity of relationship restored. Secondly, I want us to see here too that there's a meekness and gentleness that, that, that manifests itself within the life of Isaac. Let's read on in verses 17 to 22. It says, Now Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father with the Philistines, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names of his father, excuse me, he gave them the names that his father had given him. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley, they found there a well of water. The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen and said, water, this water is ours. So he named the, the well Essek because they had contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, and so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. The wells have been stopped by the Philistines. They've been stopped. Why did they do this? Well, this is a supply and demand technique in that day. I mean, if you deplete the water resources, less is raised and less is grown, and then your prices rise. But now in the famine years, they need the water resources, and so they're bickering over these, these wells that they've stopped up. And even, in fact, what's going on here is fascinating because Abimelech comes along now, has come along to Isaac previously and said, hey, you're mightier than us, and now his own men are bickering here over these wells. But what's most significant in this is that Isaac does not retaliate. He doesn't fight back. In fact, he lets God fight for them. He lets God fight for them. Not only twice, not only once, but twice, Isaac steps away from what really was his. I mean, this, this, this well was dug by his own father. It was legitimately his. But there's a meekness here that demonstrates that he's trusting in God's adoption of him and his, God's ability to provide. God's going to protect. He's going to provide even if it appears there's no way forward. And so he moves away. And he digs another well. And finally, here, there's no quarrel over it. He calls, it a, he calls it by a name which means that the Lord has made room for us. And the truth is, God will make room for you too. You may have family that's quarreling. And you might be tempted to retaliate in kind, but know this, God will make a place for you too. You can trust that God is more for you than the people who are against you. I mean, but doesn't this seem like defeat? I mean, like, you're not even standing up for justice. Like, this seems like defeat. A while ago, I came across an article written by a pastor's wife, a music pastor's wife. Her name's Audrey Smith, and she lives in the South, and she writes this account of her, her life in church ministry in which 
she became under attack and the family became under attack and she felt like doing nothing was like defeat. This is what she says. It's fascinating. While my husband Brady was a worship pastor in a church, he suddenly became the target of a disgruntled musician. The man's lies spread quickly and credibly. He was related to half the people in the church and lifelong friends with the rest. Hurt and surprised, Brady sought the advice of the senior pastor who had weathered similar storms. His advice? Say nothing. Continue serving with grace and godliness. And trust God to take care of it. She says, doing nothing seemed like admitting defeat. We struggled for months to stand against the undercurrent of gossip, and we longed to defend the truth to get everything out in the open and to clear Brady's name. Why would God want us to wait it out? Wait it out? My husband's life was never in danger. Only his reputation and pride were at stake. Brady said nothing and continued to lead with kindness and love, especially with his accuser. And eventually, the entire community realized the rumor-mongering that was one-sided conversation, and the conflict dissipated as if it had never happened. Brady gained a reputation as a man of peace. But regardless of the eventual outcome, she says, we are called to patiently wait on God's justice and timing. We are to be people of peace and to trust in God for vindication. That is truth. But that can't come without a solid understanding of your personal adoption into the family of God. And so, we often have to take a step back and allow God to vindicate us and vindicate us with a godliness character which becomes eventually evident to all. But that's a, that's a significant blessing that comes through relationship with, with God, and Isaac had that. Third and the last one here is he develops a tenderheartedness and a forgiving attitude. Verse 23 through 33, let's continue this last piece of the text. In verse 23, we read, from there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of the army, Isaac said to him, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will not do us harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. And so Isaac made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they arose and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. 
And he called it Sheba, which the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And so, from Rehoboth, Isaac moves towards Beersheba, and the Lord comes to him again and, and, and proclaims to him his commitment to him. His, his unconditional grace here is clearly laid out. And there is a tenderheartedness that comes out of this, that he's, he's clearly aware that God is for him. No one is against him. And so he has the ability to reach out to someone who, yes, offended him and is now able to turn and say to them, I forgive you, all is well. Now this is what Ephesians 4.32-5.1 through 5, 1 was getting at. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When he brought you into the family of God, that was the decisive factor which made it possible for you to be able to forgive. And this tenderheartedness flows out of that deepening understanding of the love of God. And so we're not enslaved to our past. And the tenderness, the tenderheartedness here has everything to do with God's part in the relationship, his purposeful forgiveness of our sin. Notice how Isaac responds to this. You know, he addresses the wrong, because clearly there was wrong. He addresses it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. But then he gives Abimelech an opportunity to explain and, and respond appropriately, to which he does, and he acknowledges that God has put his favor upon Isaac. And so he's asking for an opportunity to have peace and relationship here with him. And so Isaac responds cordially. He responds with a tenderheartedness and a forgiveness. How do we know this? Because he doesn't shove him out the door. He welcomes him in. There's a feast, and they exchange oaths together the next day. God blesses this. You know what happens? Verse 32. The very same day, another well is broken. Like God is blessing this. He delights to bless this. You know, it's like in our day, it's like they struck crude oil. Like this was like valuable stuff. But you know what? Christ's love for us makes us a new kind of person. And it is his command that we ought to love as he loved. And we have the freedom to do so because of Christ. And so just in conclusion here this morning, what I'm trying to communicate is that we ought to resist a fatalistic mentality with all of our might. I mean, not even with our might, but with God's might. Change is possible. Because Christ has forgiven everything and has created a new creature. And so we're not a product of our environment. We, we have environment, but we are redeemed out of environments. We're given a new heart. And I want us to see here in the relationship with Isaac and God that God is the decisive factor in making us what we ought to be. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to share this message and kind of the things that you're doing in my, my heart through this message. I just thank you that the word of God speaks. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would be speaking um, to all of us, that we would recognize that, that freedom to change is there because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we may not trust in our own understanding, but we would in all ways acknowledge you. And, Lord, that you would direct our paths, that you would change our paths. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.